0: I can't seem to say. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Holderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to nickholderbaum.com UFF to get started. Suzanne O'Sullivan is a leading neurologist and winner of the welcome book prize for her book, It's All in Your Head, her new book, The Sleeping Beauties, is an investigation into communities community struck by seemingly inexplicable illnesses. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: What made you want to explore this controversial terrain of disorders and physical symptoms that seem to defy explanation?
1: Well, really, it was a sort of an interest that arose out of necessity. So I'm a consultant neurologist, and I'm particularly trained to look after people with epilepsy, which is obviously a brain disease. But what a lot of people may not realize is that in the average epilepsy clinic, you know, up to a third, maybe a fifth to a third of people who come to a clinic with seizures who believe they have epilepsy actually have seizures that are psychosomatic in origin, what would have been called hysteria 100 years ago. So this sort of phenomena of the body sort of reacting to something psychological or behavioral is really, really common. And yet doctors like myself who deal with brain diseases are simply not trained to deal with these problems. We're kind of allowed to just sort of say, well, if it's not a brain disease, you can go home because you don't fall within my category of diseases. That's how doctors are often trained these days. But, you know, once it became my responsibility to care for people, I realized if that was my attitude, I'd be... Sort of sending home, you know, a, a very large number of people or having a lot of seizures just because they didn't have epilepsy. So I became interested in it so that I could give my patients a better service. Mm.
0: Did you ever find yourself getting skeptical or burnout due to people faking seizures or faking disorders or making things up? Because I'm sure you could have just as easily went down the cynical route and viewed these people as as being fakers or just over dramatic.
1: Yes, so I think that that's a really important point, because people with psychosomatic disorders are constantly worried that they're going to be accused of faking. And realistically, in, in you know, casualty departments, in emergency departments, people do accuse them of faking. For myself, I, when I started out as a very junior doctor, I certainly was sceptical at the beginning So if I saw someone who was profoundly paralyzed and I examined them lying on the examination couch and they couldn't move their legs, you know, I would do what many junior doctors do, which is I'd watch them sort of slyly afterwards, you know, as they were getting into their wheelchair, putting on their shoes to see if they moved, you know, when I wasn't formally examining them. So I was sort of had this idea in my head that um, people were not as paralyzed as, as they appeared to be. What's actually happened really trajectory for me is as I've gained more experience and I've been a neurologist for 30 years now, I realize that actually very, very few people are unconsciously generated. I know that for a few reasons. I know it because I meet the people now and I look after them. And because I realize that someone who comes to the hospital and says, I want a brain scan, I want a spinal scan because they genuinely believe they have a neurological condition, you know, is, is, it's illogical for someone who's faking illness to keep presenting and keep presenting and to have seizures in front of their doctors, for example. So I can tell from the behavior of my patients how desperate they are for help, that I appreciate that not everyone is sort of, um, has seen how genuine their suffering is. And for those people, I'd say, we can now do functional imaging scans where we can compare somebody, for example, who has these dissociative or hysterical seizures or psychosomatic paralysis with someone who we actually say, please pretend to be paralyzed, please pretend to have a seizure. And we can see that their brains react very differently to to what happens when a person pretends. So we now have the imaging to prove these people were, were never pretending. But I would say that I can tell from their In genuine disappointment when scans are normal. They're genuine, sort of begging to to be investigated further. That these people are genuinely suffering and completely and utterly perplexed when the tests keep coming back as normal. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you get. You get good at spotting those sort of things. Like as paramedics, we see a lot of fake seizures or, and we have special tools like ammonia inhalants that we can use to wake them up or to see if they're faking or not.
1: Yeah, it might, might imply that something has a sort of psychosomatic or unconscious cause. And when someone has something, for example, like a paralysis or seizure, which is sort of unconsciously generated, it, it does require attention and anxiety on the physical symptom to maintain it. So usually when people, for example, can't move their legs, it's because they're they're so intent on their legs, They're, they're paying attention to them, they're worried about them, they're thinking about them all the time. If you then do something to distract that person, you might find that they're actually able to move their legs in the distracted moments. And that's more of a feature of the condition rather than what we used to think in the past. I used to think, when I, you know, 30 years ago, I used to think the fact that these disabilities were distractible meant that they were um, doing it on purpose. I actually think that distractibility is just because the thing that maintains the um, disability more than anything else is all of the worry and anxiety and attention to that body part. So I think if you kind of find that somebody wakes up very easily with, with the sort of um, noxious stimuli, et cetera, But you might actually be mistaking some people who have have these genuine conditions for for faking, actually.
0: Mm, Interesting. And when you decided to travel the world and bring your expertise to these cases, like the girls in New York who were besieged by a media labeled mass hysteria, how did you gauge which cases were worth exploring and which were Um, likely the pseudokind?
1: First of all, I tried to concentrate on people who had medical conditions that would actually attend my clinic, you know, so I didn't want to pretend to be a medical expert in everything. So I chose people, for example, who had seizures and um, tick-like syndromes and um, unconscious spells and sleeping attacks, because as a neurologist, that's what I deal with. I then sort of spent a long time really reading through what was available in the public arena to make sure that you know, I, as you say, I visited these young women in upstate New York who um, had sort of a, a tick-like syndrome that spread. They started out having symptoms a little bit like Tourette's, all in a high school in upstate New York, and these sort of tick-like Tourette's-like syndrome spread through the school like wildfire and, and the girls then evolved into having seizures. Now I would you know, know that that case was of interest to me because it was really in the public arena that their doctors had diagnosed them with the psychosomatic disorder. So it was really, I needed to know that there was definitely no underlying, you know, a lot of people believe these outbreaks are caused by poisons or, or some sort of subterfuge of some sort. I needed to know that that was really not the case and I needed the people to have medical problems that I understood as a medical doctor and deal with every day so that I didn't sort of meander into pretending I knew things that I didn't know.
0: In your previous book, it's all in your head, you looked at psychosomatic illnesses through the lens of individual cases. And now in your follow up the sleeping beauties, you traveled around the world exploring these mysterious mass cases. Why are these illnesses considered mysteries? And is this a term that can get us into trouble?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think this mystery thing is a real, it's a kind of a euphemism that people use. I'm not sure that they really are. I mean, we don't have all the answers, but listen, there's loads of things we don't have the answers for. We don't know what causes motor neuron disease. We don't know what causes multiple sclerosis, but we don't call them mystery illnesses. We can't cure them, but we don't call them mystery illnesses. And yet here we have a condition that's constantly referred to as a mystery. And I think it's because of our general discomfort with the concept of the kind of power of the mind over the body and also a discomfort with talking openly about psychological illnesses. So I would see patients in my clinic who I diagnose with, we now call these functional neurological disorders, but there's lots of other names, conversion disorders and psychosomatic disorders. And often they're much more comfortable with being considered to have a mystery illness than you know, a psychosomatic disorder because of the stigma attached all the cases in the book I found by googling the terms like mystery illness and every time I then read in more in-depth kind of detail into the mystery illnesses in hand everyone always knew what was wrong with them it was never truly a mystery Mm. but I think it's such as people cannot believe that the, the mind can do that to the body so they they just regard it as sort of unexplained
0: You mentioned a few neurological conditions for which we don't know the cause and we don't refer to them as mystery illnesses and like migraines, for example, don't show up on scans. Why aren't they referred to as mystery illness?
1: Yeah, I think when you hold these sort of psychosomatic disorders, we hold them to a completely different standard. So exactly as you say, you know. um, People kind of struggle to accept they have a psychosomatic disorder because there's no single test for it. But precisely as you say, there's no single test for migraine. But if I tell one of my patients they have migraine, they don't say, well, I won't believe you because it doesn't show up in a scan. I think it's because of the discomfort we have in accepting a psychological or psychosomatic diagnosis. We want much better evidence for it. And I think, you know, for very, very good reasons people evade the diagnosis, you know, because it's difficult imagine telling your coworkers or your neighbor, you know, that you're having seizures and they have a psychological cause. You know that some people are going to judge you for that reason. Mm. And I think, you know, people will try and get out of the diagnosis, but for very good reason.
0: And what makes it a mass illness? I mean, how many cases does there have to be for it to be considered mass?
1: Gosh, I'm not sure that I know that there's a specific number. Um, And I think the smallest group that I saw were a group with a mass illness was about 18. But I guess if you've got like five or six people, I don't believe there's an actual number. But these things don't you definitely need more than two or three for this to become a a kind of um, a mass outbreak. I'm not sure there's actually a definition for it now that you say that.
0: I found myself getting overwhelmed by all the different terms for these conditions uh, like psychosomatic and functional neurological disorders. Why is this obsessive use of labeling a real problem when talking about these disorders?
1: Yeah, I mean, you and me both, basically, I mean, I'm absolutely exhausted by it. I think that what we're trying to do is we're, we're constantly trying to find a term that doesn't seem pejorative, doesn't seem insulting um, and that people won't associate with negative connotations come from some past um, versions of this. So, you know, this the seizures I see now were once called hysteria, then conversion disorder, then non-epileptic attacks, psychogenic non-epileptic attacks, functional seizures, dissociative seizures. And I think what each term is trying to do is it's trying to, to shrug off some negative part of the diagnosis. So no one wants to be told they have hysteria because it obviously, first of all, it refers to the womb um, because it comes from the Greek word for womb. So obviously it suggests only women can have it, which isn't true. And um, no one wants to be called hysterical because it is just that emotionally overwrought. And so that name changed to conversion syndrome and conversion disorder was meant to imply that physical emotional things were being converted into physical symptoms. And that was acceptable for a while until people realized a conversion disorder was just hysteria. So conversion disorder was changed to something else. And unfortunately, that's all doctors. I mean, this is my very much my personal opinion, not all doctors agree with this. But I feel that, you know, for the last hundred years, all doctors have done is just keep changing the name. And then sort of they can say to patients now, you have a functional neurological disorder and nobody will realize that that was hysteria of old. So it'll be accepted for a while. But at some point, people will catch up with that name and then they'll have to get another new name. So I really strongly believe what we need to do is raise people's understanding of how these things happen and make them acceptable with the names we have rather than just relabeling.
0: Well, let's use the shortened FNDs for now. Are these sort of like the opposite of the placebo effect where the mind can convince the body a fake treatment is the real thing and an FND is where the person can exhibit ailments or symptoms caused by their mind?
1: Yeah, the terminology is so difficult, isn't it? But I mean, you're right, it's, it's very like something, um, the nocebo effect, the opposite of the placebo effect. It's really about how easily those sort of um, controls of sensation and, and motor functions are so easily derailed. So an awful lot is going on in our unconscious minds to control how our body feels and how easily we move. And when we're well, and particularly when we're young, you know we do everything without thinking and uh, we can walk along the street and we're not planning it you know it's all unconsciously controlled but what happens in functional neurological disorders or fnd is that some trigger and that trigger could be anything it could be a psychological upset but it could be an injury it could be an illness it could be a rumor of a disease in the community it could be a million things and that's some that trigger causes you to start paying attention to your body in a different way and using it in a different way. So if I think I've injured my back, I might walk differently to accommodate that injury in my back. And then I might start paying attention to my legs because I'm worried that they, there's something wrong with them. And I might notice sensations that were always there, but I'm only noticing them now because I'm paying attention. So it's this sort of the beliefs that we have about what's happening inside our bodies changes the way we use our bodies and changes the attention we pay to our bodies, and that can inadvertently lead to to disability. Mm.
0: So like the rumor of coronavirus spreading throughout your town might make you more consciously aware of every time you hear somebody cough or sneeze?
1: Absolutely, 100%. And I cannot be the only person. I mean, the coronavirus kind of really hit London in March 2020. And that was when we went into our first lockdown, and I live in London. And um, You know, I cannot be the only person who in the first like two or three weeks of the pandemic was examining myself for symptoms. Mm -hmm. It was a very frightening time. And I measured my temperature loads and loads of times. And every single time my temperature was not elevated, even though I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's exactly how these sort of things can develop. Most of us will sort of examine our bodies and we'll find things, but we'll eventually move on and get over it. But other people will notice symptoms and remain concerned about those symptoms. And that can escalate.
0: Well, these are a result of physiological mechanisms in the brain going awry and producing like genuine physical symptoms and disabilities. So why is there pushback against them as a diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's the important point. I think people don't quite, you know, people kind of think that um, diseases are sort of biological. So diseases are happening because of, you know, cell changes or hormone changes or things like that in the body. And people are fine with that because it's outside of your control but people think that um, psychosomatic disorders are separate in some way from biology, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if I, for example, have a seizure for psychosomatic reasons, it's because some biological change is happening within my brain that's causing it to shut down. And perhaps that biological thing isn't epilepsy, perhaps that it isn't a faulty wiring of some sort, but it's still an unconsciously um, generated biological change within my brain. And I think we just need to advertise that fact better because i still think that if you tell your next door neighbor who who maybe isn't medically qualified at all that you're having hysterical seizures they really really can't distinguish that from this concept of of pretending or doing it on purpose and we need people to understand the biology to give this disorder credence i think
0: why does disease impress people whereas illness with no evidence of disease does not
1: yeah we all classify I think a lot of people have kind of ideas about what what they're willing to give sympathy to and what they're not willing to give sympathy to. And, you know, if you look at diseases, you know, if you tell someone that you have cancer, then you know that somebody will have a certain level of sympathy and, and offer a certain level of support to you. And sort of even within disease categories, you know, migraine will get you less sympathy. Type 1, type
0: 2 diabetes. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it's sort of, we we already classify diseases like we're impressed by some and we're not impressed by others. The problem with illness, so an illness is more a perception of how one feels and one can feel absolutely rubbish and absolutely atrocious without actually having a disease. But we are really only impressed, I think, as a society by the, the amount of abnormalities we can see on a scan and the sort of things that we can readily understand. So if somebody simply says to you that they feel absolutely terrible and they can't get out of bed, but it's not showing up in a scan and it's not correlating with the disease, I think we're just not as good at relating to that kind of suffering. We like to see scan abnormalities and we like to understand why someone is suffering. I think what we need to do, certainly the medical community needs to do is to take people at their word. You know, some very serious diseases, are not as disabling or don't, you know, aren't as pain. You know, I think we think if I take pain as an example, I think we think the pain of a disease is more painful than the pain of a psychosomatic condition like fibromyalgia, for example. Mm. Whereas I would argue that actually, you know, the degree of pain, degree of disability is often greater in psychosomatic conditions. We should start giving people respect according to degree of disability rather than the amount of abnormal cells we can see on their scan.
0: Why is that pain greater? Is it because it's closer to suffering, suffering is worse than the pain?
1: Well, no, I think that basically, it's just um, often, I don't know that I can answer and say why I know the pain is worse. I just know that the experience of the people is that they feel the pain is worse. Mm -hmm. And since we can't measure pain, we have to um, take people at their word on that. But perhaps I can use a better example which is something that's more measurable. So if you comp- compare seizures, so convulsions where people fall on the ground and convulse, if you have convulsions and you suffer with epilepsy, you probably have about a 70% chance of going into remission with treatment. And you have very little um, likelihood of end- ever ending up in a sort of um, intensive care unit, you know, because people with epilepsy have, usually don't have lots of seizures and usually they just go into hospital they get better very quickly and can be sent home again. Um, Whereas if you compare that with someone with what we now call dissociative seizures, what would have been called hysteria, they only have a 30% chance of getting better, so much smaller. Their seizures are much longer Mm. and they're much more frequent and they're much more likely to end up being admitted to intensive care units. So I think there's a sort of perception that because epilepsy is a disease, and I'm not in any way downplaying how serious that is, clearly very serious, we think that psychosomatic seizures are less serious. In fact, they, they're they less life-threatening. I agree with that. But they are much more likely to result in destroying your life, destroying your relationships, losing your job, and ending up chronically ill than epilepsy.
0: Now, I read up on Sophie and Sweden's mystery illness, and I want to talk about resignation syndrome because before I came across your work, I had never heard of this syndrome. What is the best description you've heard of what it's like to experience resignation syndrome?
1: The most sort of resonant description for me, so this is a disorder where um, we have young children, some as young as seven, but ranging the age from seven to 18. Asylum seeking children in Sweden, who sort of gradually withdraw from the world when they're faced with deportation and they some of them withdraw to such a degree that they become motionless don't eat, talk or move for years at a time. Now, the most resonant sort of description I heard of what it's like to be in that state was from a child who woke up. And he said that it was like being at the bottom of the ocean in a glass box and that you can feel the water pushing in on you and you're worried at any moment that the glass will break and that the water will rush in on you. And that's, that's a really terrifying description. Although I'm not sure that all of the children experienced it in the same way. Another child said it was like being in a dream from which they couldn't wake up. Um, again, frightening, but not quite so frightening. I think it's very hard to know what's happening inside the brains of these children, because many of them don't want to, you know, they're like this for a year and a half, two years, three years. When they wake up, they don't want to talk about it. They want to move forward.
0: Why do you regard resignation syndrome as a language of distress that speaks louder than words?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I went to see the children, so I visited some of these children and, you know, it's, it's really very disturbing because, you know, they're like tiny little rag dolls. I saw a 10-year-old girl who was just a, like a, a floppy little doll in her bed when her dad picked her up and, um, you know, she can't move and she'd been like that for a year and a half being fed through a tube. When I visited her, because I'm a neurologist, everyone was really most interested in me talking about what was happening inside the girl's brains to keep her like that. But actually, this was very clearly a social problem. All of these children are facing deportation To very dangerous countries like Syria, for example, where their lives would definitely be in danger. It was very clear what was happening to them was a kind of a a psychosocial problem, not a a brain disease problem. Mm -hmm. And what was also very clear is that this disorder sort of allowed them to express their distress in a way that could be heard you know there's a lot of asylum seeking children in the world and there's a lot of people fleeing very frightening places at the moment and you know we're all very um, sympathetic you know for moments at a time but not necessarily always acting on that and we have to sort of see children genuinely suffering for us to feel sorry for them or to feel we should help them mm-hmm. and really what resignation syndrome did for these children is it expressed the depth of their you know their distress to the world
0: makes me think of the quote you wrote the body is the mouse, mouthpiece of the mind
1: yeah because I think people forget I think people think their thoughts are just inside their head but you just have to think for a moment like you know your body language changes you know if you meet somebody you know well you can tell if they're in a good mood or a bad mood just by watching them you know walk up to you you know, our, our body, our thoughts are embodied all the time, you know, everything we do good days, bad days, you can tell a confident person from a shy person by the way that they stand. And I think people don't realize it is quite normal to express yourself through your body and thoughts are felt in the body. You can't, if you summon up an emotion now, you know, I can't summon up a feeling of fear without also having some sort of tangible feeling within my stomach or my chest to go along with it.
0: How does something like resignation syndrome spread around the world?
1: Yeah, so these things are spread by people gaining knowledge of them. Again, I think the kind of coronavirus provides quite a good example of how, you know, that's a virus, obviously, that spreads. But even those of us who didn't contract the virus probably experienced some of the symptoms of it at some point just by being com- repeatedly told here are the symptoms of coronavirus, look out for them. Mm-hmm. And that causes us to sort of examine our bodies and notice things we wouldn't notice before. Also our brains are very, are, are they are programmed by expectation. And that's just for every normal thing we do. You know, you can look at a car and say how, how fast it's going and whether it's safe to cross the road because you, your brain has been programmed with sort of the knowledge of that and therefore you can sort of that you can navigate the world quickly and efficiently by knowing how things should behave and having expectations and in the case of something like resignation syndrome if a child expects that when they are facing deportation that they'll start noticing sickness then that sort of stress hormone changes that one feels in one's body they'll they'll see that and they'll think you know, unconsciously, perhaps this is the beginning of, of resignation syndrome. I hope I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to happen to me next. Then they look for the next symptom that happens with resignation syndrome. And once you start looking for symptoms, you can begin embodying them. So acting them out um, unconsciously. So it's a sort of, you just have to hear the story. The story has to be resident enough. You have to hear it enough times that it's sort of planted itself in your brain. And then you can unconsciously act it out
0: fascinating because then you hear a story the story stresses you out the stress response then worsens your immune system so then you have a crappy immune response and you end up getting sick
1: yeah I mean a hundred percent yeah it's all it's all cumulative you know it's just one little thing it might start with something very small like the butterflies in your stomach of anxiety that any one of us could get and then it sort of just accumulates and accumulates and it can lead to serious disability unfortunately
0: What should be done to prevent future cases of resignation syndrome and how should those already comatose or catatonic be treated?
1: Well, I think at the moment, many of the children in resignation syndrome are cared for at home by their families, which is sort of speaks volumes to how little respect we have for this type of suffering. You know, if a child was comatose for any other reason, we'd expect them to be in hospital. Um, So I really think that these children who are already affected need to be um, given intensive rehabilitation because if your body sort of slowly recedes into this place you can recover by being kind of rehabilitated in the same way that you would be from a brain injury or a back injury or an accident of some sort you need to be gently taught to walk again taught to sit up again taught to wake up again Um, so I think the children could probably do with more intensive rehabilitation we need to address the social problem if we need this to stop um because that's really sort of people want to treat the children individually but this is actually a social problem a worldwide social problem that we need to address you know we've got wars now in people fleeing places like afghanistan you know these sort of problems are going to continue unless we address the social problems in the world
0: to go back for a second you were saying there are kids who are lying in their homes not receiving okay. professional treatment when they should be hospitalized
1: yeah, I mean, I met children and the children that I met were all at home. I mean, I should say in support, these children are all in Sweden. And, you know, if you're going to end up in a country as an asylum seeker, that's a good place to be because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, people are well cared for there. But ultimately, when they were in hospital, the doctors weren't doing very much for them. So that was the original cases. So the subsequent cases, they're cared for at home. But you know that if they were sort of Swedish children, English children, American children, you know, we wouldn't consider that good enough treatment, would we? So I think right. we need to take it a bit more seriously. And
0: that's why I like the term FND, because it implies there's a functional aspect where we need to get to root cause recognition and root cause resolution. So we need to address the underlying social problems that created the disorder in the first place.
1: hundred percent. And that's why the, um, that's why that label was created really was to, because, you know, it, it. Any term that has something like psychosomatic or psychological in it is is quite dismissible by a lot of people. The functional neurological disorder says my nervous system is not functioning, and that makes people sit up and pay attention a little more.
0: So did you find that eradicating these disorders was the wrong thing to hope for?
1: Well, yeah, that was the funny thing about this was, you know, as a doctor, you know, when I wrote my first book, It's All in Your Head, which was about individuals with this, and specifically my own patients. I I really had this idea that if you could just teach people about this mind-body sort of interaction, that you could just get rid of this problem, that it would stop happening. But then as I traveled around the world, meeting people like the children with resignation syndrome, but other groups as well, I realized that sometimes these disorders have come to solve a problem. For the resignation syndrome, they're a language of distress that allows these young people to be heard when they would never be heard in any other circumstance. There were other groups that I met who used these sort of these symptoms as a problem solving. So for example, a town in Kazakhstan where people believed they were being deliberately poisoned by the government causing a sleeping sickness. I realized after I talked to them that it was an incredibly, complex story to that town and that actually the sleeping sickness wasn't just a kind of psychological reaction to stress it had come to give these people permission to leave a town that they loved so they loved this dying town that they lived in they kind of had to leave it but they couldn't kind of quite bear to leave it and they developed a sleeping sickness that kind of said to them right now the town's making you sick so it's time to leave and when I saw that I thought okay you know what these people have done is very sophisticated You know, they found a way to to solve one of their big problems without without causing themselves quite so much psychological pain in doing so. So I've come to see that in small numbers of cases, at least, these disorders are are good problem solving mechanisms.
0: So these disorders like sleeping sickness, for example, can actually serve a vital purpose?
1: Yeah, they can serve both a personal and, and a social purpose. And sometimes, um, you know, obviously that isn't the case always, but I think sometimes they're necessary.
0: Why have FNDs advanced so little in terms of treatment and recovery rates?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's quite shocking. I mean, when I, I qualified as a doctor, this discussion we're having now wouldn't even have taken place because no one was interested in these problems at all. So I would say there's been advancement because there are doctors around the world who are interested in helping people with these disorders now, but it's in its infancy. We're still at the point of still trying to even think of what to call problems like FND. And we're still at the point of trying to understand how they happen and set up big research trials, which takes a long time. Um, And we, we haven't even got close to the next stage, which is formalizing treatment and setting up specialist units. There really should be, You know, if you had diabetes, you'd want to go and see a diabetes doctor. If you had epilepsy, you want to see an epilepsy doctor. If you have this problem, you'd be hard pressed to find any doctor who's particularly sort of expertise in it. So I think it's just taken very, very many years for doctors to realize what an important condition this is. We've been dismissing it for too long. Uh, Although I I don't want to be completely negative, (laughs) things are definitely improving. You know, in the UK and in the States, there are now interested Um, doctors, but you have to live in the right place and know where they are.
0: If we do stop neglecting the socio cultural influences, how can doctors start to incorporate in these social factors that influence illness into their formulations?
1: Well, I think it's really important because, you know, at the moment, a lot of medical doctors um, really all our focus is on inside the body. You know, it's the biology. It's the, you know, giving people tablets and doing scans. But actually, you know, an awful lot of patients, um, you know, when you actually talk to them, it's their social circumstances and the social triggers for their illness that bother them the most. Sometimes I say to my patients, do you really want me to give you another tablet? They say, no, I'd like you to improve my housing. I'd like you to sort of get me a better job, you know. But as a medical community, um, I can't speak to exactly how it works in the States, but I'm sure it's very similar. You know, we, we work very separately to people like social workers or people who work in the community to help people's circumstances at home. And we work very separately to psychologists often. We think that, you know, every single medical team should include people like social workers and should include people like psychologists.
0: And this has to be extremely difficult for the parents. How do the parents handle the attention and the accusations? Because I'm sure they often get blamed for their child's behavior or accused of even sedating their kids or seeking unnecessary health care.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, you know, what happens. Um, you know, the first thing that people do, I mean, with the resignation syndrome, that there's been many, many accusations of faking and parents um, drugging their children or forcing their children to behave in a particular way. And there I should say that there have been a small number of cases of resignation syndrome recently where the children, um, when they grew up, said that they had been asked to behave in this way. But unfortunately, you will always, when faced with... Um, these sort of problems find there are people who take advantage of the situation, but we shouldn't assume that, that means that everyone is behaving in that way. I think that one of the things that stops people coming forward for help, one of the things that stops people getting better is this accusation of faking. Because if someone says to you that you're faking or your child is faking something, what do you do? Your automatic reaction is to reinforce your symptoms to prove you're not faking. Mm. You know, if a person has to prove that they're sick, it's very hard for them to get better. So I think as a, as a public, we need to get, you know, listen, there are people who fake illnesses, of course there are, but they are not the majority group here. And we need to sort of keep an open mind when we encounter people with these problems, so we don't force them into the corner of having to prove that they're sick, because that will stop them getting better.
0: Hmm. Of all the stories you were told in researching for this book, what what did the ones that ended most happily have in common in terms of the response at the community level?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was another surprise for me, I have to say, because, I, you know, I, I openly admit, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spiritual person myself, and um, uh, I, I am an atheist, but I traveled around the world meeting people who had outbreaks of seizures, for example, which is something I deal with um, in my medical practice. Now, when I deal with seizures in my medical practice, they have about a 30% chance of getting better. But I visited communities, for example, the mosquito people of Nicaragua, who have seizures exactly like my patients, 100% of them get better. And they get better through ritualized treatment and spiritual treatment um, with traditional healers and pastors. And I saw that in other places as well, for example, Guiana. So I found that kind of, you know, places where communities came together to support this, the person who was sick and ritualized treatment that made them feel supported was really a much more successful way of treating people than our sort of Western medical way, which is, you, you know, you lock them away in their homes and, you know, refer them to a psychiatrist and it's all kind of shameful. and anything but a community response. Um, So I think, you know, I don't, because I'm not a spiritual person myself, I really have to try and figure out how I can incorporate this into my practice. But certainly it's about making a person feel cared for and supported by the community, which I don't think Western societies do very well.
0: So you came to admire communities like the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua the most because they provided support for each other and they took a holistic view of health.
1: Yeah, and they did. They did. They didn't judge. So I think in Western medicine we have this sort of like, um, oh, it's psychological or it's a disease. And sometimes not everybody, but a percentage of people, once you say it's psychological, that's like a sort of derogatory sort of term. Um, so we're very dualist and we divide things up in a way, um, you know, less respectful and more more worthy of respect. Whereas the mosquito people who are in the indigenous people of Nicaragua they don't divide diseases up in that way at all. You know, these illnesses are not the fault of the person. They're not seen to be sort of psychological and therefore due to the frailty and weakness of the individual. They, um, they consider these sort of diseases to have um, more of a spiritual cause. And consequence of that is that they don't think it's shameful. And because it's not shameful, the community support the person and and um, help them to get better and that's a much more you know successful strategy than locking people away shamefully
0: well I think that is a beautiful place to end off that the shared spirituality and sense of community can help us succeed in healing and treating these disorders
1: yes and I think that um, I hope that I can incorporate that into my practice at least
0: all right Suzanne if you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf are you reading anything good right now
1: I am currently reading a book called, oh, I'm not sure now why I wanna recommend it, but I think um, it's called Under the Skin. It was this um, book that was made into an amazing, amazing movie with um, Charlotte Johansson a few years ago, set in Scotland with one of the strangest stories ever. So if you wanna read a book with the strangest story you've ever read, beautifully written, then read Under the Skin by Michelle Faber.
0: Thank you for sharing. And then if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why?
1: Oh, I'm thinking of Oscar Wilde. Um, You know, Oscar Wilde, the writer and wit, um, you know, he's funny, he's intelligent, and he has a clever quip for every single um, moment. And I would love to have met him. So him for sure.
0: I think he was the one who said every saint has a past, every sinner has a future.
1: I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. It certainly sounds like him.
0: All right, Suzanne, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. I'll have links to your book in the show notes. Where else do you want people to go to connect with you?
1: I am not a social media person because I work full time as a doctor. I shy away from that a little. So this is the only place people will be linking with me, I think.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun.
1: And listen, it was so nice of you to have me. I'm very grateful.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Prime And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.